the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program after a holiday day off. Hope you had a great holiday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you have tuned in to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever they might be. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. Once more, that's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send the questions to us directly that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call, especially on our wet streets today, is to use the free KSLR mobile app. One button you got to push says call now at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Nothing going on on Tuesday, so we'll get right to the questions. We'd love to have your phone calls and questions. 340-9585. Here's a question from Laura. She said, Job confuses me. I'm laughing with you, Laura, not laughing at you. Why did God allow the devil to attack him, and why didn't God explain to Job? Laura, for thousands of years, the book of Job has caused no end of confusion and pain and even consternation to people. Why would God do these things? Let me tell you what I told my church when we started Job. And by the way, if you're interested, Laura... Um, CalvarySA.com. Uh, I have a verse by verse, chapter by chapter teaching through the book of Job uh, online, and it's all free, so maybe that could help um, unconfuse you a little bit. Uh, but I told my church that we have to begin our study through Job not asking the question why. Replace the question why with the question who, because the answer is always going to be Jesus. Now, why did God do that? Well, remember, Job asked that question. Job's friends judged him because of that question throughout the entire book. And God never, ever answered. Sometimes there's just no why. There's just no why. Uh, It was obvious right at the beginning of the book that Satan had been um, prowling around Job trying to find an opening, and Job, God said he's the most righteous man on the earth. He said there's no other like him, and Satan was frustrated. So Satan, um, one day in the councils of God, and, and, and I'll go one better, Lord, I don't know why God allows Satan um, to, to appear before him, but he does. Um, one day Satan said um, uh, to God's response, God says, you've been checking my servant Job out, haven't you? And Satan said, yeah, but you've got him protected. He would curse you if something happened. Well, God basically said, 
Have at it. You can't kill him, but have at it. And so the enemy attacked, and we know all of the details. He lost his family. He lost his fortune. He lost his friends. He lost uh, his health. He lost absolutely everything. And it came out of nowhere. It came in an instant. And so Job had to depend on God. Started out doing okay, but then with friend after friend after friend and trying to defend himself, he finally got to the place where he challenged God. And the short story is he got to the place in the book where he realized that before he only knew about God, but in his suffering and in his pain, he saw God. He heard God. And God never answered the question why. He just said, Job, when you can give the stars and the skies their path so that they don't crash into one another, then I'll answer your question. When you can give the fish in the sea their roots to swim, then you can get an answer. But until then, I'm the one in charge. And you remember there was a place, Laura, and I think this is the, the most important thing I'm going to say. There was a place in Job where Job cried out, if only there were a man between me and the Almighty. Only if there were a man to plead my case. And that man, of course, is Jesus. And when Job saw and heard Jesus, then everything made sense. And it made sense without the answers to the questions. I hope that makes sense to you. Laura, for reasons we'll never be able to understand, it was part of God's plan for Job to benefit the rest of us for all of these thousands of years to learn that we could trust in the one who has everything in his hand. I think too often, Laura, we're trying to find out the answers to the why questions and there simply are no answers sometimes. We just have to trust that God is good, that he loves us. Certainly he's proven that to us. Well, Job also had that lesson to learn. And in learning it, he's blessed people for generations. And as a result, can you imagine the rewards in heaven? Let me say one other thing about Job, Laura. I think it's naive at times of Christians we look at the end of Job. Well, you know, God blessed him and he got double the number of children and he got um, double the, the amount of wealth and, and, and everything was restored. So Job ended up okay. Job's pain over losing his family would never go away. Job's pain, certainly he was a righteous man and would forgive, but Job's pain over being betrayed by his friends would never go away. But Job is a wonderful example sometimes of the process of setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So I hope that helps. Nick says, Pastor Ron, if you believe in Jesus, but don't believe he is God, are you still saved? Nick, the answer to your question is no, you're not still saved if you don't believe Jesus is God, because only God can forgive sins. That's really clear in our New Testament. Only God can forgive sins. If Jesus isn't God, then you believe in a Jesus that is just uh, an ordinary person. Maybe an extraordinary person, but, you know, he's more than the Son of God. He's also God the Son. And if you have a Jesus, the Mormons have a Jesus who isn't God. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a Jesus who isn't God. If you have a Jesus who isn't God then your sins are still counted against you. So, Nick, I'm going to ask you to really reconsider if you don't believe Jesus is God, just open your Bible. And as you do it, read the Gospel of John. And as you're reading it, say, Jesus, show me if you're God. You're going to see repeated I am statements. You're going to see repeatedly Jesus' Jesus's references to his deity. I'm going to be teaching tomorrow night uh, out of Isaiah chapter 8 and the first seven verses of chapter 9. And of Jesus, it said that he is almighty God, the everlasting Father. He and the Father are one. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus told Philip. So Nick, you've got to believe in the Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible to be saved. So I challenge you to find out for yourself if Jesus is, in fact, God. If he's not, then we're all kind of foolish to be doing a radio program about him. We're foolish to be trying to serve him. We're, we should be doing whatever we want to do and enjoy the time that we have here. Because if Jesus is not God, then this, this earth is all we've got. Here is somebody taking me to task anonymously. You said recently that the SBC, the, the Southern Baptist Conference, has been taken over by Calvinists. You are wrong. Baptists are not Calvinists, and you should apologize. Uh, Anonymous, you better check. Now, I didn't say that the SBC had been taken over by Calvinists. What I said is that Calvinists now are the majority of the SBC churches. That's their systematic theology. And I'm not wrong. The president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary is Al Moeller. He is a Calvinist, the new president of the South, uh, of the Southern Baptist Conference. Uh, J.D. Garrar, I think is how you say his name. He is a Calvinist. Um, all over this country, Calvinism has crept into and is now taking over the Southern Baptist Conference. So I'm not wrong, and I won't apologize. Um, but before you get angry with somebody and challenge somebody, you should know what you're talking about. All you have to do is Google a list of Baptist churches that are Calvinists, neo-Calvinists, young Calvinists, whatever you want to call them. But the, the, the doctrine of Calvinism has inundated the Southern Baptist Church. And I think it's a shame. Armando says, is it true that pagans introduce Sunday worship into the church? Armando, uh, it's not true. Um, you can read the book of Acts. It's the book of Acts right at the very beginning that the day that Christians gathered together changed from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday. And it's changed in honor of the resurrection of Jesus Christ when you meet on the first day of the week. And this really, really awful teaching that, no, that was just pagans who introduced that into the church and that's the mark of the beast and everything else, it's simply not true. And unless you consider the early church apostles pagans, they were the ones that did it. So Armando, um, don't listen to what people say when they've got an axe to grind or when they've got an agenda. And if you're listening to Seventh-day Adventists or or uh, others who are bent on legalism, or even messianic congregations. Um, The day Christians gathered changed in the book of Acts in the first century, and it is the model that we are to follow. Now, is it wrong to worship on the Sabbath, on Saturday? Not at all. Every day belongs to the Lord. Paul makes that point in his letter to the Colossians. Um... All days we esteem the same. So, corporate worship in the New Testament tradition, as given to us by the book of Acts, is that they met on the first day of the week, representing the Sabbath. I'm sorry, representing the resurrection. Please forgive me for that. You know, one of the things I was thinking about when I I misspoke just now is um, um, eight in the Bible uh, is the number of new beginnings. Uh, the seventh day, of course, is Saturday. So you add one, that's eight. Well, that's what they're celebrating. The new beginning we all had that was demonstrated by Jesus rising from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. We're going to keep in our tradition um, in the West, especially, we're going to continue to worship on Sunday. And uh, we honor the resurrection of our Lord every time we show up. 340-9585 for your live calls. Walter says, um, forgive me for asking, but can you explain the three experiences we have with the Holy Spirit? You've done this before, but I can't remember exactly what you said. I can do it, Walter. I can do it, I think, pretty quickly, too. Uh, every believer has three experiences. You can go through the book of Acts and find all three experiences. 
Um, uh, the, 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 I'm going to use English terms, and then I'll, I'll give you the Greek words that you can use your concordance. Um, the with experience, the inexperience, and the upon experience. Now, the with experience, that Greek word is para. That's when the Holy Spirit comes alongside you and begins to convict you of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. For me, that happened 28 years ago, uh, this month, in fact. And and I remember vividly, Walter, I remember uh, being aware that some things that I was doing, even though I had been doing them for a very, very long time and it never bothered me before, I became aware that those things were wrong things to do. And I was confused. I didn't know. I also seemed to sense an impending judgment. I, I I knew that I was going to stand before God, a God I didn't even believe in. But I knew I was going to stand before God and be judged. What I didn't understand was righteousness. Well, the Holy Spirit fulfilled righteousness for me by introducing me to Jesus Christ. I had to get desperate. I got to the to the very end of me, and I cried out for Jesus. My exact words were, Jesus, if you're real, I need Paula's Jesus because Paula is the one that had been saved. She's the one that had been praying for me. She's the one who had a joy that even in the middle of the pain I caused her, I couldn't take from her. And I cried out. That was the para or with experience. He came alongside me to let me know that something was wrong. The next experience is when I cried out, I need you. He came in and lived in me, relationally, not physically. There's not a little Jesus running around in my heart. But, but relationally, he came in me. That Greek word is en, in. And it describes that, that transaction that occurs the moment we're born again, the moment we say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I need help. He comes in us, in in English, en in Greek. And we have the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form living within us. So we have everything that we need. We're as saved as we're ever going to be saved. The third experience is the, in the Greek, it's epi, E-P-I. In English, we would say it's a pawn, when he comes upon us in power. And we saw, of course, the first example of that. Um, triggered by the obedience of the disciples who had become apostles on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church was born. The spirits made an appearance with with cloven tongues of fire, with uh, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then came upon them and they spoke in other tongues. Now, that was a sign gift. That doesn't mean we have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit. But when he comes up on us, you can call it being baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. doesn't matter what you call it. What matters, Walter, is that we get it. And so when the Spirit of God comes upon us, we are empowered to do anything and everything he's asked us to do. Acts 5.32 gives us the trigger for that. God gives the Holy Spirit. That context is in power to those who obey him. So as you obey the Lord, uh, you go out tomorrow and share Jesus with somebody. Do it intentionally. Say, well, Lord, open the door. I want to share Jesus with somebody. The Spirit of God is going to come on you, come upon you, and you're going to be able to do that. Uh, when you're praying and you're standing before the Lord, the Spirit of God will come upon you and pray um, the things that the Spirit knows you need to pray, and that may be in an unknown tongue. Uh, you need to, to, to have the Spirit come upon you to go to work tomorrow, Walter, and be a good employee, to be a good husband, a good father. We can't do that in our own strength, frankly, because we don't have any strength. But when the power of God comes upon us, and this is a, that power that raised Christ from the dead, when that power comes upon us, there's nothing that we can't do. And that's because the Spirit of God promises to provide all that we need. So those are the three experiences, and you're not a believer unless you've had all three. The first experience, of course, is when he comes alongside you, the para-experience, when he comes in you, I-N in English, E-N in Greek, and when he comes upon you, epi, E-P-I, in Greek, that's when he empowers you for service. Hopefully, Walter, that makes you 
um, able to understand. Also, um, you know, when I do this radio program, I hope he comes upon me in power. When I'm preaching, we had a a message, uh, Jesus's model for prayer in Luke chapter 11 this past Sunday. Um, I hope, you know, I can study and, and I hope the spirits come upon me when I'm studying. But it's when I step out in obedience and begin to preach the message, whether it's um, one service, I ask for that same power, the next service, and then the third service that follows, I want him to come upon me so that what I'm really communicating to the people who show up is exactly the heart and the word of God. So we need the power of God's spirit for everything that we can do. One final comment, Walter. It is my opinion that the upon experience, the epi experience, is the most neglected gift of God in the church today. Too many of us, we have it sort of on cruise control spiritually. We we just do what we're going to do. We don't ask the Lord what he wants us to do. We don't make ourselves available for new things. It doesn't mean we're not saved. But what it means is that we have no power. For those of you who talk on your phones a lot, I don't. My phone never gets below like 98%. But for those of you that are always charging your phones, you know what it's like when you are trying to talk to somebody that's important and you know your battery's about to give out? Well, for a Christian, it's our batteries about to give out if we're not connected to the source of power. And that's the person of the Holy Spirit who so graciously lives in me. And by the way, that's why Paul said that one of the things that we're not to do is to quench the Holy Spirit. And we quench him simply by not asking what he wants and not being obedient. I always am amazed, Walter, when I think the only thing powerful enough in this world to thwart the work God the Holy Spirit wants to do is us. We can put the fire of the Holy Spirit out by quenching him. And it's something none of us should ever want to do, of course. So I hope that uh, helps, Walter. Thank you for, for asking. Here is a question from Jason. Well, I just touched on this. Jason said, Pastor Ron, do you have to speak in tongues if you're really saved. No, you don't, Jason. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, and chapter 14 are sort of the two um, uh, chapters that, that talk about the, 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 the use of the Spirit, uh, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, and, and how they function. And, and Paul asks a series of rhetorical questions, and one of them is, do all speak in tongues? The answer to all those rhetorical questions is no. Now, there are churches, and you've apparently bumped into one, Jason. There are churches that will will try to teach that uh, unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. Um, but, but God, 1 Corinthians 12 says, gives gifts as he wills, not as we will, as he wills. So, there are way more Christians who don't speak in tongues than do. And your false teaching or the teaching you've received would disqualify them from heaven, Jason. Um, I think everybody could speak in tongues. Uh, but the honest truth is, there's just some people it doesn't make any sense and they're not willing to step outside what makes sense. Now, the gift of tongues is the least of all of the gifts. It is a vertical gift. It's not horizontal. It's not between man to man or, 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 or man to woman or woman to woman. It's, it's between man and God. It edifies only the one using the gift. That makes it the least of all of the gifts. But it's still a great gift. In fact, just this Sunday, at the end of the Lord's Model for Prayer, Jason, uh, Jesus asked, well, how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So I think in terms of this gift of tongues, I really believe it's a gift that God would give anybody and everybody who would ask and receive by faith. But the reality is that for some it makes no sense. It makes people feel silly. Uh, if they don't understand it, they just don't have the faith to step outside and use it. So, Jason, if you want to speak in tongues, ask him to give you the gift. 
and then just start speaking. It may sound silly to you. The devil will be there to tell you that's not God, that's you. But it doesn't matter. You're good, safe hands with Jesus. So just begin. It is a wonderful gift. Um, a gift that I received uh, very, very early in my Christian walk. And um, I love exercising the use of the gift of tongues. Do I speak in tongues at church? Of course not. But it's a wonderful, wonderful gift and you will be blessed. It will edify, strengthen your relationship with our wonderful Father and Son in heaven, this Holy Spirit. Just it's like putting your toe in, knowing that you're going to get power as a result. So if you want to speak in tongues, ask for it, receive it by faith, and begin to use it. But if you don't speak in tongues, Jason, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It also doesn't mean that you're not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's sort of charismatic nonsense that's being taught in too many of our churches. So hope that answers your question, Jason. We are just about at the end of the first half of the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, toll free. You can call 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. We'd love to have your live calls. Maybe the second half of the program can be more entertaining than the first half. We've got a two-minute break. We will be back. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 30 minutes left for your phone calls, 340-9585. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Here is a question from Brenda. Actually, another sort of snarky challenge. I believe Christians can date or marry unbelievers if that's what God tells them to do. It seems like you are prejudiced against unbelievers. Brenda, I'm really not. I love unbelievers so much that I can't stop telling them about Jesus. Now, here's the thing that you've got to understand. God would never tell you or anybody else to do something that he's already told us not to do in his word. Now, I'm sure that makes sense to you. If God is God, he's got to be consistent. If he tells us that we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in his Bible, why would he tell you or anybody else that, oh, I didn't mean that was for you, it's just for other people? Why would he tell anybody to marry an unbeliever? And see, you've got a decision to make. Do you believe God? Are you going to believe your feelings? Are you believe other people? You need to learn what your Bible says. Learn the character, the, the holy character of the God who says it. And then he just wants you, Brenda, to obey. Now, I understand your flesh wanting to date or even marry somebody who's not a believer. But here's why God says don't do it. He says don't do it because he's trying to save you a lifetime of pain. Nearly 24 years I've been the pastor of the church, and the most pain that I deal with comes from unequally yoked relationships. Somebody's lonely, they get tired of waiting, they just settle for somebody who will take them, and they regret that choice for the rest of their lives. So, Brenda, it doesn't matter what you believe. It's what God's already said to do. Two more comments, and then I'll move on. To say that I'm prejudiced against unbelievers, when I'm quoting the Bible, Brenda, is rejecting the Word of God. It's judging my heart. God says, don't do that. And it 
demonstrate such a lack of understanding about who God is and how much more he has for you, how much more he wants for you. And this is the second point. It really sounds like you're not saved. Can't judge your heart. I don't know you. But you see, as Christians, it's our responsibility, Brenda, to agree with our Christ. And he's the one that pushed the pen of the Apostle Paul when he said, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's really, really important. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Brenda doesn't get any more clear than that. And I'll say one final thing. This is a repetition, but it's important. Every single real Christian who makes the mistake of marrying unequally yoked regrets it. I know women, we have women who listen to this radio program all the time. We get the calls. Every pastor has women in this church. And men, it's, it's less frequent, but it works both ways. Some married very nice men or women. But there's just something missing. Imagine being married to somebody for... 20, 30, 40. Paul and I are getting pretty close to 50 years. Imagine spending an entire life with somebody who you're not going to spend eternity with. So, Brenda, please don't make the mistake that seems like you're making. And no, I'm not prejudiced against anybody. That would be a sin. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is... Um, well, I just answered this. This is another question for Mary. I didn't realize they were together. Usually I write related question, but I didn't put on this one. She said, is it okay with God if we date or even marry unbelievers? I'm in love with someone who doesn't know Jesus. I'll just tell you what I told Brenda. Don't do it. Do not do it. It will break your heart and cause you pain. Here is a question from Joanne. She wants to know, are some sins worse than other sins? And what are the really bad sins? Uh, Joanne, this may not make sense to you, but I'll try to explain it. The really, really, really bad sins are the willful ones. The things that you do knowing it's wrong, and yet you do it anyway. So those are sins that are worse than other sins. Now, if by worse sins and other sins you mean like murder versus just losing your temper and shouting at somebody, um, yeah, the consequences are, are far greater for some sins. But... All sin separates you from God. All sin. Um, If you want to look at a list of really bad sins, turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. And there is a list of sins that Paul explains people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That makes those sins really, really deadly. So while some sins are worse and have worse ramifications and consequences, all sin separates us from God, Joanne. And um, as a Christian, or I hope you're a Christian, um, what I would hope that you would do is instead of seeing how much you can sin or how much you can get away with and still be saved, I would hope that you would want to see instead how close you can get to Jesus. And if you get close to Jesus, you're not going to want to sin. It's that simple. If you get close to Jesus, you want to be with him. You won't want to chase him away, and that's what sin does. So the worst sins are the willful ones. Uh, The only unforgivable sin is the continuing rejection of Jesus Christ and dying in that place. But Joanne, if you get to heaven... Assuming you're a real believer, you get to heaven and there are no rewards to be given to you because your fellowship with God was broken 
it's going to be a tragic moment. Getting to heaven is not enough. Pleasing Jesus is all that matters. I once had a a, a wonderful young woman then. She's not so young anymore, but she was really trying hard. She had just had a couple things in her life that, that she just didn't want to get rid of, but she was radically converted. She was really trying hard. Finally, she came to me in frustration one day, and she said, Pastor on. I'm doing 90% of the stuff God wants me to do the right way, but the 10%. So if I keep doing this, will God bless me 90%? And I said, if you're holding on to sin, then God won't bless you at all. Now, we all get blessed because God is good. But you're holding yourself back from receiving the fullness of God. Uh, here at church, I call it being under the spout where the glory comes out. That only happens by dealing with sin. So, I um, hope that helps. 340-9585. Here's an anonymous question. Um, he or she says, I think Christians should be vegetarians or vegans. Do you think it's wrong to eat meat or kill animals in hunting? Uh, I was just uh, meeting with a, a pastor, uh, a dear, dear friend, his son to me, yesterday, in fact, and and I said, so how are you doing? You look good. He goes, well, we've gone the whole vegetarian route. His wife is a vegan, but he's gone just vegetarian. And he says, I'm feeling better, you know, I'm uh, as I get older, I don't have to worry about dairy or the, the other things, and, um, um, and, and it, it was good for him, um, but it's not good for everything. You, the question is phrased, should Christians be? Uh, and the answer is that's that's a choice that we all get to make. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian, nor am I a vegan. Uh, it's certainly not wrong to eat meat. Um, all things that were made um, were, were made by God. Jesus said, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And so this is a matter of personal choice, but it is wrong of you if you were to judge somebody who wasn't a vegetarian or vegan. Now, let me deal with the hunting question. I am not a hunter, but people have been hunting from the very beginning of time. As soon as sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, then it was necessary to hunt, to eat. And uh, people have been hunting from the beginning. Again, I'm not a hunter. Uh, I don't like nature. I don't want to be outdoors. Um, People hunt and they go out when it's cold. I hate being cold. Um, So I've got no stake in this answer. But those who do go hunt, um, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate that's wrong. Animals are not to be revered on a level, equal level with humans. We get a lot of loud noise in our world about how we should treat every living thing with respect. No, every living thing. God gave man dominion over them. So if if you like to hunt, you can hunt. Um, I would think personally, and this is just an opinion based on zero experience, um, I, I never have seen the value or the purpose of sport hunting, but people that hunt to eat what they hunt or they hunt because they have to. Every time you go to HEB, you're benefiting from somebody else either hunting or raising up animals to, to die. Um, uh, if, if you hunt and eat what you kill, then, then there's no sin there. So I hope that helps. This is an interesting question from Jeff. Pastor on what's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Jeff, um, the difference is sort of the the approach that we take. Let me explain. Uh, If you have biblical theology, it's because you read the Bible and you formed a theology or a systematic theology based on what you read. In other words, what the Bible says has informed and or developed your your systematic theology. Uh, If if you take it the other way around 
and you find a systematic theology, for instance, Calvinism, or just just one Reformed uh, systematic theology, then you're going to impose that theology on what you read in the Bible. And so instead of, of doing that, instead of saying, well, I'm a Calvinist, so every time I read this, for God so loved the world, I know it means for God so loved the elect. That's a systematic theology that is deeply, deeply flawed. If you have a biblical theology, then you read, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, then you realize that God gave his son because he loved the people of this world so much that he couldn't bear to see us perish. That's a biblical theology. So it's one thing letting the Bible. This is what I did. You know, Jeff, I was not raised in church, so I had no baggage at all. When I got saved at um, 39, almost 40 years old, I had no religious baggage at all. If you'd asked me what a systematic theology was back then, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. Uh, what about the early church fathers? I wouldn't have been able to tell you. The, the creeds, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I got my theology from reading the Bible and learning first and foremost the character, the nature of God. Because I realized very quickly that if I knew who he was, then I couldn't get too far off doctrinally. Every biblical doctrine has to be consistent. If it's going to be right, it has to be consistent with the character and the nature of God. And so I didn't get tripped up by Calvinism when when I started reading Calvin's Institutes. And I got a lot of blessing out of Calvin's Institutes. But I knew that God didn't pick some for heaven and some for hell because that stood in contradistinction to his character. So a biblical theology is reading the Bible and letting what you read form your approach to God. A systematic theology is reading the Bible and imposing that systematic theology on what you read, and that's how we get messed up. So, Jeff, that's the difference. Phones are quiet. 340-9585. Marie says, what is your view on how churches should respond to claims of abuse. Um, and then in parentheses, um, Marie wrote spiritual abuse too. Um, Marie, churches should, uh, obviously, w- when we are abusing people that God gave us stewardship over, then then we're in deep, deep, deep sin. Now, I don't know if your question is, um, sort of formulated by the news that's uh, uh, the Southern Baptist Conference uh, we actually talked about on this program last week uh, and all the claims of abuse or the claims of abuse against the Catholic Church. Um, uh, every claim of abuse uh, needs to be dealt with um, openly, transparently. Um, if, if we take the approach that, well, we don't believe you without checking it out, uh, then we're misrepresenting the Lord. Uh, I think we have to be honest, Marie, and say that there's a whole lot of people who who falsely uh, claim uh, abuse when when no such thing has happened. Uh, we, we're just seeing in the news that that actor on the the, the movie Empire, the the TV series Empire, uh, who was claiming to be mugged, uh, beaten up, and and a rope put around his neck and some chemicals sprayed on him. Uh, is now in the news because his story is unraveling and, and it's evident now that the incident never happened. Uh, there are troubled people who do that. However, and I can only speak for Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, but it is my hope that if anybody felt like they were spiritually abused, um, they, they would be able to come to me or to the other church leaders and we would listen to them and we would investigate with open hearts. Uh, we would do so transparently. If somebody claimed sexual abuse, then we'd stop the presses and make sure that everything um, stopped until we found out what the truth was in this matter. And and true victims of abuse, whether it's sexual abuse or, or spiritual abuse, um, we need to realize they've been deeply, deeply wounded. 
and we need to deal with them with compassion. We need to deal with them um, with a sense of, of uh, we really want to help these people. Um, if we try to cover it up, um, then we're no worse than uh, the, the second abuse is always worse than the first. So I think that's the case. So, Maria, I hope that helps. Let's go to Daniel on line one from San Antonio. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. I was going to ask you a question. I was uh, listening to you earlier about talking about how, you know, when we willfully sin, we lose our fellowship with God. Yes. Um, like, I've heard that before, but I was just thinking, like, you know, I know, you know, throughout the years, like when I got saved, you know, there was a reduction of sin in my life. and I, um, But I... You know, I've, I don't know, you know, I, I've never, I can't say that I've lived a perfect life, and I don't, I don't know if I ever will and, until the day, you know, when I leave this earth, right? But, I mean, I just think, like, you know, if, if we, if we sin, um, you know, the, the Bible says that God doesn't hold our sins against us anymore. I'm not saying this as a, a license to sin, right, because I think that it's, yeah, you, I understand. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you know yeah. He's going to lead you away from sin, and you know He He, he guides us, right? But yeah, Daniel, Daniel, we, we're Daniel, we're running out of time, and I let me let me answer your question. We we've got a couple other callers holding. I'd like to get to them, but but we we're going to sin. You're you're never going to be perfect. I know that for a fact. Neither am I. But that's what First John one nine says. If we confess our sins, that's to agree with God about sin then he's faithful to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. So this isn't a salvation issue, uh, that our sins are remembered no more, that they're wiped out. Um, that, it, that's, that's dealing with salvation. But the relationship that we have with God on an everyday basis is a relationship that has to be holy. John says that we have to walk in the light because he is the light. So what we've got to do is we've got to walk with Jesus. We've got to hate it when we sin, willfully or not. When we see, we realize that damage has been done to the fellowship that we have with God, and when we say "I'm sorry," that fellowship is instantly restored. And the only area that I'd, I'd caution you, and I don't think this is your issue, Daniel, but but too often Christians will decide, well, um, um, I, I, I'm not perfect, so I, I've got these few things that I do from time to time. Uh, but the whole idea is to f- ask for forgiveness, to repent of those things. If we hold on to those things, then our fellowship remains broken. We can't hear from God, and we're sort of on our own without the benefit of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Let's go to Eric on line two. Eric, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Thank you. I have a question concerning a friend of mine who believes when his wife takes the kids to go visit the grandparents and he can't get off work, Rather than do anything he shouldn't do, he masturbates so that he is faithful to his wife. He thinks that's faithful to his wife. Is it being faithful or is it sin if he masturbates when his wife is out of town so that he won't do anything else that might be wrong? Yeah, Eric, if if he has to do that in order to control himself, then then what he's done is completely reject the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. It's not okay, and I'm assuming that he's masturbating while looking at pornography. Um, that's never okay. That is a sin not only against God, but it's a sin against his wife. And um, um, you, you kind of stand next to him and tell him that's not okay. And if you're going to sin... Um, then you need to be saved. If if we're if Jesus has overcome sin, if he's if he's won the battle for us, we're no longer sin shall no longer have dominion over us. We're told. Then then what we have to do is just decide instead of to be uh, satisfying our 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 flesh, um, what we want to do is get close to Jesus, satisfy him. So the short answer, Eric, is it is a sin, and he needs to stop. Um, if he's probably not telling his wife what he's doing, um, and that's an indication he knows it's wrong. So, Eric, pray for your friend. He needs it. Thank you very, very much. Let's take uh, Richard on line three from San Antonio. Richard, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron, for taking my question. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine is also in the same subject of sin. Now, are we predetermined to sin, or are we predestined to sin? 
I don't know if that um, makes any I, sense or not. Well, I, it does a little bit, Richard, but, but I think it's such a fine line between the two. Uh, we, we sin because we have a sin nature. Now, we don't have to sin. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. Richard, your Bible doesn't say Richard is faithful. It says, and God is faithful. So though we're going to sin, we don't have to sin. But when we do sin, John says in First John, we have an advocate the mediator, the one man between God and man is the man Christ Jesus. We have an advocate who forgives us when we repent. So uh, we're going to sin because we have a sin nature. God knows we're going to sin. So it's neither programmed into us by God, um, nor is it something that we are predestined to do and have no say-so or no choice in the matter. Um, God knows when we're going to sin. Um, he, he knows our response when we sin. He knows the condition of our heart uh, when we sin. Um, but he's always provided a way out so that we don't have to sin. Uh, sin shall no longer be in control in our lives. So uh, that's the, 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 the safest way to approach it. Uh, yeah, we're going to sin. I wish I wouldn't, but I'm going to say something or do something and 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 then then my heart is going to be proven genuine by how i respond to that if my response is well you know i can't be perfect i'm going to sin then i don't really understand what god has done for me if my response is god i'm so sorry i hate when i do that well that's the sin that's washed away and i'm purified from all unrighteousness thank you for the question well, we finished with some questions. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.